This morning is a very special morning for me and what I trust will be a very special morning for all of you as we embark upon a study of the book of Proverbs. What can be said about the book of Proverbs? It is a fascinating collection of wise sayings which having been contemplated, challenge us to the very soul of our being. Roy Zook, a wonderful Bible teacher and professor in years past at Dallas Theological Seminary, has said this about the book of Proverbs, no other book of the Bible has such a collection of Proverbs, hundreds of them in fact, that state observations and admonitions so succinctly. Because of their terseness, they penetrate the soul like a sharp knife. They capture the reader before he has time to recoil. Another said about the Proverbs that they demand time for your thoughts to ferment in the mind. These pithy sayings are great nuggets of gold, great and wonderful sayings drawn from tremendous wisdom. Hassel Bullock, another great Bible teacher, says, in its basic form, the proverb is an ancient saying that takes wisdom and endows it with youthful vigor. In a few piquant phrases, the proverb capsulizes a practical idea or truth in such a way of mental consciousness. It reweaves the threadbare idea and shows the ordinary to be quite extraordinary. It is said, beloved, that the proverbs are truths that have been tested by time. The proverbs present to us the teaching of God which gives us skill to live daily to the glory of God. It isn't simply wisdom for wisdom's sake or knowledge for knowledge's sake, but a wisdom which is designed to give a person the vital information they need in order to respond both to God and to men. I guess it is probably nowhere better stated than in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, which you'll hear about at the end of our service and then again tonight. Listen to it. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That is a great, pithy series of statements that speak really about the Proverbs themselves and what they are for us and how we're supposed to respond to them. And I don't want any of us to think for one moment in Jesus Christ that these Old Testament Proverbs can't relate to how we live. You may not know this, but the book of Proverbs itself explicitly is quoted in ten New Testament instances. It's quoted, for instance, in Romans 3.15, Romans 12.16, Romans 12.20, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, James 4, 6, James 4, 13, 1 Peter 2, 17, 1 Peter 4, 8 and 18, and 2 Peter 2, 22. In other words, the Proverbs are very applicable for us today. I guess it's probably true that the Proverbs are alluded to many, many other times, not only in the New Testament, but in other places in the Old Testament as well. There are some, however, who would question the validity of the Proverbs for our day. Why does this book of the Bible 
seem to be so irrelevant for so many people? Why does it receive so little attention in the public ministry of the Christian church? Have you ever heard anyone exposit the book of Proverbs verse by verse? I don't think I've ever heard a preacher go through the book of Proverbs at any time in my lifetime or my ministry or anything that I've ever read. Of course, we know that there are commentaries on the book of Proverbs, but I dare say that there have been very, very few people in the church who have ever heard a systematic understanding of the Proverbs. Why is this? Greg Parsons says that few sermons are preached from this book. For many preachers, the book of Proverbs apparently seems like Quoting another man, Thomas Long, nothing more than a deserted stretch of highway between Psalms and Ecclesiastes. It appears dry and barren to so many people. Another writer says, with the exception of Leviticus, it is doubtful that any biblical book is viewed with less enthusiasm by the preacher. Why? Well, for one thing, if you've ever tried to outline the book of Proverbs, you know how difficult it is. It's probably that reason alone that has scared off many a Christian preacher. What are some of the reasons, maybe, that the book of Proverbs has not seen the attention that is due this wonderful book? Let me give you a couple of them. Number one, some Proverbs, as the Christian preacher would try to understand them, seem to be contradictory to human experience or even contradictory to one another. Let's look at a few of those to see why it might be a challenge to preach through the book of Proverbs. Look at chapter 10 of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 27. This is a very familiar proverb, but it doesn't come without its challenges. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27 it says the fear of the Lord prolongs life but the years of the wicked will be shortened in other words there is a proverb here that seems as though when you look at it Proverbs 10:27 that if you fear the Lord you'll prolong life and that if you're a wicked person your life will automatically be shortened and yet there are other Proverbs that speak of what seems to be the opposite of that. If you're a righteous person, it might be that you'll suffer persecution and even, quote-unquote, premature death. So when you put those Proverbs against each other, how is it that both of them are supposed to be understood? In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4, Proverbs 22, 4, we might see one of these verses shared just in this way. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. And yet we also know that sometimes if you're a humble man and sometimes if you fear the Lord, you'll not have riches. You may in fact not have any honor. You may not be known by any person. You may only be known in terms of your life and your integrity by the Lord Himself. And it may be, of course, that you don't have a long life at all. The Puritans are, of course, an example of that. So many of them had so great an honor, and yet so many of them died, some of them even in their 20s and 30s. How do we understand some of these things? Sometimes even the Proverbs seem directly contradictory, maybe even within the verses themselves. Look at chapter 26, verse 4. Chapter 26, verse 4. This seems a bit strange. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. But then look at verse 5. Answer a fool. Now wait a minute. Are you not to answer a fool according to his folly, or are you to answer a fool? And you'll even notice that the translators, at least of the New American Standard Bible, say in verse 5, answer a fool as his folly deserves. And you see that word deserves is in italics. Why? 
because the translators realized that within the context of two verses, one verse says, answer a fool, and another verse says, don't answer a fool. And so they try to do a little bit of an interpretive way of helping us explain such a thing, and that is, you are to answer a fool, but only as his folly deserves. And yet, it might be a, perceived as a little bit difficult to understand. Chapter 23, verse 9, when you put it up against not answering a fool, says this, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. How do we understand that in, in light of verse 5 that I just read? Answer a fool. This says, do not speak in the hearing of a fool. Are those contradictory to each other? Are they giving us, in essence, contradictory truth to try to understand? Of course, it isn't, if you understand it rightly, but it certainly appears to be that way. A second reason why it might be difficult to preach through the Proverbs is this. Some, if not many Proverbs, seem to be nothing more than moralistic saying. Something that might be true just in life itself, life in general. It may not have any spiritual connotation to itself at all. It may not have any particular theological or Godward focus. Are we supposed to listen to those kinds of things? In chapter 14, for instance. Look at verse 20. Proverbs 14, 20. What would be the God word focus of this particular proverb? The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. In other words, it's just a comment about some people who are rich and some people who are poor. doesn't really say anything about God. doesn't say anything about theology per se, how do you understand such a verse? And what is its relevance for us? Look at chapter 17, verse 8. This is an interesting proverb. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Now that seems a bit strange, doesn't it? A person who has money who takes a bribe, it says wherever he turns, he prospers. Is that something we're supposed to apply to our life? How do we understand such a thing? Look at chapter 20, verse 13. Do not love sleep, or you will become poor. Open your eyes, and you will be satisfied with food. Well, is that a command to go out and eat? Is that a command to open your eyes and while your eyes are open, put food in your mouth? And plus, even if that's the case, what does it have to do with God? What does it have to do with the Lord and His Word? You see, there are some challenging aspects to the Proverbs. Here's another reason why it might be challenging. Some sections of the book of Proverbs consists of hundreds of statements that don't seem to fit either what comes before or what comes after. Maybe there's a preacher who might say, I'm not going to touch that for anything. I'll let the Christian public read that on their own. And yet that might be in itself a challenge because with these other challenges, how do we rightly understand some of these things unless you have it taught to you? Here's another one. Some proverbs seem overly harsh in our society and even potentially dangerous, if not in the eyes of our present government, criminal. Look at chapter 23, Verse 13. This is an interesting proverb. Chapter 23, verse 13. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. Now, doesn't that strike you as a pretty hard whack of the rod? Seems to me that our government might say today, not only any whack with the rod is out of bounds, but certainly a whack that would be so hard that you would be wondering if it would cause death. In fact, this might even be a verse that some people who don't know Christ, who don't love the Lord, would say, now see, here's a verse in the Bible that's clearly wrong because you should not hit your children with the kind of force for which you then have an assurance that even if you hit them this hard, they will not die. You see, we can't believe Christianity. How are we supposed to handle some of these very tricky matters? 
And further, how are we supposed to synthesize all of these Proverbs together? Well, I really want to introduce the study of Proverbs this morning, not really with a sermon, but really with a hermeneutics lesson. Hermeneutics, the science and art of biblical interpretation. I want to give you some cautions. I want to give you some principles to understand how to rightly interpret and apply the book of Proverbs to our lives. Now, these are things that I'm going to have to do as the man who is entrusted with the responsibility to study beforehand and then come and bring you the truth of the true meaning of Proverbs. And these are things that I have to work through when I study, and they might be very well applicable for you if you study the Proverbs also. Let me give you a, a few of those, maybe five. Number one, number one, these will be very, very helpful to all of us. You must interpret the book of Proverbs in light of its intended purpose or structure. Let me say that again, it's very important. You must interpret the book of Proverbs in light of its intended purpose and structure. Did you realize that there are a number of headings in the book of Proverbs? They might not all be readily accessible to your mind as you're reading through because some of them come right in the middle of a, of a particular chapter in Proverbs going in a completely different direction. And if you're not careful you're going to miss the point of that particular section because it's under a different, different heading, which may also mean it's under a different structure and context altogether. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 1, which we'll attempt to cover next time, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And then verses 3 to 7 give us really the title of the entire rest of the Proverbs. In other words, in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, we have almost, as it were, a title for the rest of the Proverbs. That's very important because verses 3 to 7 specifically are going to give us the real keys to understanding not only what a proverb really is, which, by the way, in the Hebrew is mashal, it's a, a saying, it's a, a wise statement. It's a way to understand life. And those verses in the first part of Proverbs are really a title. And they give us the clue to understanding all of the rest of the Proverbs. Did you know there's another heading or title in chapter 10, verse 1? The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. And that title and the concept of wisdom goes all the way through chapter 10, verse 1, to chapter 22, verse 16. So all of that material from chapter 10, verse 1, to chapter 22, verse 16, is under one heading. Do you ever realize that? It's not so random as we might suppose. There is something to be gained when understanding that it's under that heading and it's material that's designed to talk about the wisdom that a son must have when taught by his father and his mother. In chapter 22, verse 17, there's another heading, sometimes called an inclusio. It's a subtitle, it's a heading that tells us where we're going to go. It gives us maybe a signpost to let us know what's going to come after. In chapter 22, verse 17, it says, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. And then Solomon goes on to say, as its author, here are some aspects of knowledge that you must understand. Chapter 24, verse 23, there's another heading. Chapter 24, verse 23, These also are the sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judgment is not good. And then the rest of that section talks about partiality. It talks about judgment. It talks about discernment. Very, very important to know. Chapter 25, verse 1, These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. In other words, as you know from 2 Kings, where it talks about all of Solomon's Proverbs and how many there were and how they were categorized, he would speak these things, and then the Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and his scribes, they would 
they would write these things down and they would transcribe them on a scroll and then those things were put in a very, very specific order. And there is order to it. It may not always seem like it, but there is order to it and our task is to figure out what it is. And then there's another heading in chapter 30, verse 1. And that is the words of Agur, the son of Jacques, the oracle. Did you realize that Solomon is not the only author of the book of Proverbs? There's another author, and his name is Agur. And then in chapter 31, verse 1, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. So here's another author of the Proverbs, King Lemuel. Of course, he's the author of that great section there, the Proverbs related to the virtuous woman, the wife. And so, I bring all of those up to say that these headings help us understand the individual proverbial collections and the purposes of each section. And then around the banner to all of those headings is maybe one statement that is really the fulfillment of them all, and you know it quite well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom or understanding. And that is littered also throughout the Proverbs. Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 10. And in fact, you find that in Job chapter 28, verse 28, and Psalm 111, verse 10, that same statement appears, which shows you that all of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament has as its ringing theme, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. Now, it may not be that every one of the Proverbs underneath those headings is directly germane to that heading, but it is to say that all of those are underneath the general banner of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. Now, it may be interesting to you as well as we study this introduction to the Proverbs and try to grasp all of these things in our minds that there are really two types of Proverbs. Two. There are the wisdom sentences. The wisdom sentences. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is this. The Proverbs that are under this particular type make an indicative statement of fact. For instance, look at Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. Proverbs 12, 4. This is a statement of fact. If I were to say about you, well, this is indicative of the way he is, or this is indicative of the way she is, what I'm saying is this is a fact or a statement that describes the way you really are. Well, notice the Proverbs do the same thing. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. In other words, it's a declarative statement. It's an indicative statement. It's indicative of an excellent wife that she is the crown of her husband. And it's also, from a negative viewpoint, indicative of a wife who shames her husband. It's just like rottenness in his bones. Now, this particular kind of statement or proverb is listed, interestingly enough, as an indicative mainly in chapters 10 through chapter 22, or at least the first 16 verses. Chapter 10 to chapter 22. Now, that's a great way to outline this book. If you were to say in your own mind, well, I know that there's indicative statements, statements of fact about how life is or about how I am or about who the wicked is or about who the foolish is, and these indicative statements are mainly contained in chapters 10 to chapter 22, verse 16, and also in chapters 25 through 29. You know that that's almost all of the Proverbs after chapter 10. So you could actually categorize them as indicative statements from chapter 10 on with a few exceptions, but most of the rest of Proverbs is just like that type. There's a second type, and that is the admonition statement. The admonition statement. These are proverbs that we could say are imperatives. The first kind are indicatives, the way things really are. The second kind of proverb is an imperative, the way things ought to be. This is a statement of command. It's not stating who or how you really are indicatively. It's telling you this is the way you ought to be. This is a command. This is something you ought to do. And this particular kind of a proverb is really the first part of Proverbs, all the way from chapter 1 
through chapter 9. And then a little bit in chapter 22, verse 17 to chapter 24, verse 22. And I'll show you when we go through those where I am in any one section, whether this is indicative or whether this is imperative. An example, of course, of an imperative statement is in chapter 1, verse 15. And what you're going to hear me say throughout this series is since the first nine chapters are imperatival commands, you're going to hear a lot of exhortation from me. You're going to hear a lot of statements from the pulpit that say, this is what you ought to do, or this is what you ought to refrain from doing. And then when we come to the next section, the, the wisdom statements, the indicative statements, whenever that might be, those will be those times in which I say, this is the way it is in life. This is the way things are. You see the difference? Look at the imperative statement in chapter 1, verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. That is, evil enticing sinners. Do not walk in the way with them. That's an imperative statement. That's a command. Keep your feet from their path. You see, that is not an indicative statement. That's not saying how things are. That is saying this is what you must do. This is a command. You can see the differences there between those two types. So, if you sort of bundled it all up in one big bag, you could say there are two types of Proverbs. The indicatives and the imperatives. Now, that's a great principle of interpretation that all of us must know. There are times, of course, in which we might be confused, where we're looking at a particular statement, and it is to us a statement of imperative nature, and we say, is this something that's an option for us? And there might be times where we see something that's an indicative statement, a statement of fact, and we say, is this true? And we have to be careful that we don't confuse the two. There's a second interpretive principle that I want you to know. The first is to understand the, the form, the structure, the purpose. The second is this. You must interpret each proverb in view of its own context. You must interpret each proverb in view of its own context. And I would hasten to say its own literary form. Because did you realize that there are different kinds of proverbs, not just indicative proverbs and imperative proverbs, but there are actually subcategories even within both of those types. You say, what are those? Well, let me give you a few. There are synonymous proverbs. You say, boy, he's given us a whole bunch of lists today. Well, that's good, because as you write them down, you can better understand the proverbs. You can know what's going on in these great, great wisdom sayings not by just reading them yourself and trying to figure them out, but knowing a little bit of background, a little bit of interpretation, so that you can have a better handle on understanding this book. There are a couple of different forms of the Proverbs. One is this, synonymous Proverbs. Synonymous Proverbs. What are these? Well, these are two-line Proverbs. Line number one, line number two, and the second line repeats the theme of the first line. That's probably a very, very common one, as you would understand it. The first line and then the second line repeats the essence of line number one. Let's look at an example of that one. Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, verse 18. This is an example of a synonymous proverb. In other words, the first and second lines of the proverb are intending to communicate the same thing in different ways. Look at verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. In other words, the second line is really restating the first line. You see it? Pride in line one, haughtiness in line two. That's a synonymous proverb. There's another kind of proverb. It's called an antithetical proverb. An antithetical proverb. Look at chapter 11. Verse 17, chapter 11, verse 17. This is a two-line proverb in which the first line makes a statement and the second line is antithetical, opposite, or contrastative. Look at this particular verse, verse 17. The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself good 
harm. You see, that's very different than the synonymous proverb. This is antithetical first and second line. This is a statement and then its opposite or its contrast. And you can obviously see that with the word but beginning the second line. That's an antithetical proverb. There's also synthetic proverbs. Synthetic proverbs. There's also synthetic proverbs. Synthetic proverbs. That's where the second line of the proverb amplifies or expands the meaning of the first line. In other words, Solomon or whoever's writing wants to make a statement. They make the statement in the first line, and in the second line, they want to expand or amplify on that statement. They want to bring in a, another key idea. An example of this would be in chapter 10, verse 18. Proverbs 10:18. He who conceals hatred has lying lips. And now he wants to expand on that. And he who spreads slander is a fool. You see, one has a reference to lying lips, but now he wants to expand on what lying is, and he wants to include the concept of, the concept of slander. That's a synthetic proverb. And then there's another one, what we might call a comparative proverb. A comparative proverb. This is again another two-line proverb where the first line of the proverb usually uses an analogy to compare the truth of the second line. Maybe sometimes from nature or maybe talking about an animal or something like that. Look at chapter 25, verse 25. Chapter 25, verse 25. These are, these are fun proverbs because they force your mind to think about the analogy first, and then once you have that thought conjured up in your mind, then you can see the truth coming at you like that sharp knife. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. You see that? You conjure up in your mind, and especially those in that very Mediterranean climate, where it doesn't often rain like cold water to a weary soul. Oh, cold water. On an, on an Arkansas summer when the humidity is 162 degrees, like a cold cup of water to a weary soul is like good news from a distant land. You can just already see in your mind's eye the opportunity to be nourished, to be given this great, cool cup of water. Ooh, that's good news. Oh, I love good news. You see, that's a comparative proverb. Now, I've just described some of these proverbs, especially these in these two lines. First line something, second line something else. Did you realize that there are also four-line proverbs? There are also six-line proverbs called a hexastitch. There's an octastitch. That's an eight-line proverb. And you know they're all used in chapters 1 through 31 to some degree. Two-line, four-line, six-line, eight-line. That's amazing. Did you realize there are also, especially in chapters 1 through 9, not just two-line, four-line, six-line, eight-line proverbs, but actually songs, or what we might call a mashal ode, a song, a, a poetry that describes something in several lines. And that's what we're going to study initially in chapters 1 through 9. It's almost all that kind of proverb and not two-line proverbs or four or six or eight. It's a narrative. It's talking about sex as God intends or it talks about some other aspect of wisdom or teaching of a young man. And it goes through a whole section where you can exposit it very easily because you're following the narrative as it works its way down. That's the mashal poetry like an ode or a story or a song. That's even a different kind of proverb. You see, you never knew how much to understand the Proverbs, did you? Here's another way to interpret, a third way to interpret the Proverbs rightly. And this is very important. It may be that this is the most important principle of all. You must not interpret the Proverbs as though they are all unconditional promises. You must not interpret the Proverbs as though they are all unconditional promises. They are what they are. And you know what they are? They're Proverbs. They're proverbial sayings intended as nothing more. You see, when you attempt to understand 
the book of Proverbs, you can only understand them when you understand that they are general observations about God and His creation. And when the sage, the wise old sage, speaks of something he has seen, it is not to be taken as a binding truth in all situations. It can't be. It can't be seen as unconditional promises for every age. But they need to be seen as practical truisms for general use in all cultures. You see, as someone well said, the Proverbs are not legal guarantees from God, but rather poetic guidelines for good behavior. That's what they are. And there have been so many people who have been tripped up by trying to jam the Proverbs into their situation as a binding truth, rather than as a general guideline for life. The Proverbs just tell us generally what life is all about. It's not intending to make a rule that fits all situations. I wish we had time to look at a few of them. We might look at one or two. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4. This would be an example of how to steer clear of this idea of not taking all of the Proverbs as though they are legally binding on your life. Proverbs 22, 4. I think I mentioned this a moment ago. The reward of the humility, the, excuse me, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Well, as I said, that may not be binding on every single person. Someone may be very dishonored because they stood for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. This is probably one of the most common proverbs everyone has heard. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. That's not a promise. That's a proverb. And by the way, once we come to study this, you'll probably find out that really this is not talking about a young child at all. This is talking about a young king who's a warrior who is being challenged by the king himself who is his father about what it means to be a king. It's really not talking about training up a, a child as we would understand it today at all. It's not even really referring to that. The context makes that very clear. And so it's really not talking about something for which you might claim as a Christian. And there have been so many Christians who've taken a verse just like this and say, I claim this for my son, I claim this for my daughter, that I'm going to teach them in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. And then some of them have been heartbroken when their son or their daughter has gone away from the Lord, some of them never to return. And some Christians have been so crushed by that because they've said, well, Lord, you didn't come through for me here. You didn't allow this claim that I had on this child's life to come true, and now I'm bitter and disappointed and upset. Well, if you rightly understand the Proverbs, that is not a verse to claim as though you could invoke that in a child's life, and then God is therefore obligated to bring that to pass. That's a way not to understand the Proverbs correctly. Or maybe another uh, very... Uh, subtle but a very clear example, Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, right? But a harsh word stirs up anger. Well, is it always and forever true in every single case without exception that a harsh word turns away, I mean a, a gentle answer turns away wrath? No, it's not true. In fact, sometimes in your best attempt to be gentle in order to turn away someone's wrath, in fact, does not work. Why? Is it because God can't be trusted? Is it because this verse is not true? No, it is a proverb. It is generally true that a gentle answer is the best, best way to respond in life. And it's also true that sometimes with your greatest gentleness, you still have people coming up against you who are very harsh. Now, of course, the reverse is also true. If it's not true in every case at all times, does that mean I'm, that I'm free to give a harsh answer sometimes? No. It's never right to do wrong in order to be right. And that's a very, very good principle. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, in their great book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, say the Proverbs are worded to be memorable rather than technically precise. And here's an ironic idea. If you want to study Proverbs for the gaining of wisdom, you have to be wise in understanding them. You have to be really wise in understanding how to be really wise. And that means you can't just flip open your Bible 
with some magical connotation, stick your finger down on a verse and say, I claim this as my own. Or taking a verse and saying, it's time for my quiet time, and I open up the Proverbs and I read something, and that is applicable for me today as a binding truth that I need to incorporate. may not be that that particular verse has anything to do with you primarily. David Hubbard says this, very wise words, We cannot use Proverbs like subway tokens, guaranteed to open the turnstile every time. They are guidelines, not mechanical formulas. We need them as best we can. Excuse me, we heed them as best we can, trying to gain the wisdom that experience can teach and then leave large amounts of room for God to surprise us with outcomes different from what our plans prescribe. In other words, we can't just put it like a coin in a slot and expect it to give us what we want. We have to allow ourselves to be impacted by it rather than the other way around. Let me give you one more. One more hermeneutical principle. You must understand some Proverbs as unconditionally true, which is the exact opposite of what I just said. In other words, there of course are some Proverbs that when you look at them, when you read them, it is unconditionally true. And I would submit that most of those statements are the ones that are speaking about the Lord, that are speaking about God, that say this is how God is, this is how He responds, this is how He deals with us. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, it says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Now, that's true, and that is true all the time, and that will forever be true, that the Lord weighs the motives of a man's heart. So anytime you read some of these Proverbs, and it says something about the Lord that you know is proved from another portion of Scripture, that is unconditional, that is binding. It's always the way the Lord will act. But, even here, there's a caution. Proverbs 15.25 the Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but He will establish the boundary of the widow. Now, ask yourself the question, does the Lord tear down the house of the proud each and in every case? Of course not. There are some mammoth houses around for which a whole bunch of proud people are living. And the Lord doesn't automatically tear that house down. What it's saying is the Lord generally is going to treat the proud in a certain way and He's going to generally treat the widow in a certain way. It may not always be from at least our perspective that the Lord is doing a certain thing although, as, though it were un, as though it were binding in all situations. No. When it's talking about the Lord's character, it's binding. When it's talking about the way the Lord deals with some people, it may not be true. In fact, every single case, it may be a little bit different depending on what the Lord wants to do in that situation. Let me just give you one more and we'll close. You must interpret each of the Proverbs within the context of wisdom literature itself. You must interpret each of the Proverbs as ancient wisdom that fits into the overall context of what ancient wisdom literature is in itself. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll just give you an example. In Proverbs chapter 26... Proverbs 26. This is a great example. In other words, you and I deal with animals in our day and age. For instance, we deal with dogs. And in some cases, the way we will, uh, deal with dogs, like maybe a little wiener dog or maybe a little chihuahua, and we go up to that little dog and we play with that dog's ears, and sometimes you'll even see a young boy, especially a young boy, rarely a young girl, but you'll see a young boy who's maybe about seven or ten, and they go up to that dog, and what do they do with the dog's ears? They just pull on them. And you can tell that the dog really doesn't like that. And so often, you'll find this little boy grabbing this dog's ears and even trying to hold the dog up off the ground by the ears, right? That's often what happens. Well, notice Proverbs chapter 26, verse 17. Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Now, if we were to import our understanding of a nice, well, maybe not so nice, seven-year-old boy who is taking a chihuahua by the ears 
and going up and down with the Chihuahua, seeing his whole body go feverishly up and down, is just like passing by and meddling with strife that's not belonging to you. You see, it doesn't fit. That's because in our day and age, with domesticated animals as they are, that particular analogy needs to be understood differently. How is it to be understood? Well, in that ancient time, within the context of that wisdom literature, all of the dogs were not domesticated. In fact, they were ravaging wolves, they were jackals, they were things to be avoided at all costs. You went by a certain way, a certain cliff, a certain wilderness area, and if there was a dog there, you would not want your seven-year-old to take the dog by the ears. And so, with that particular understanding in mind, now notice the verse. Like a, a ravaging dog taking him by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. You know what that means now? That means if you get into a situation in which two people are having strife between them and you meddle in their affairs, that's like picking up a ravaging dog by the ears and trying to, to go through that situation just like that. In fact, you might be bitten several times. That's what it means to meddle in someone else's affairs. It's like a dog between the ears who doesn't like you very much. Those are clearly some verses to understand in their historical context. And if you were to understand wisdom in that way, the wisdom literature of that time, some of those little bitty subtleties will allow you to understand these verses in ways that you maybe never thought you understood them before. Now that's just one example. There are a number of them. You remember the example in Romans 12:20 when it says how you're supposed to treat your enemy by heaping burning coals upon his head? What does that mean? Well, in the Egyptian wisdom literature, by the way, that Romans 12:20, that's one of those passages that's a direct re reference back to a proverb, Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. What does that mean? What does it mean for someone to come with a clay pot that has burning coals on it? What are they doing when they come to you? Well, did you know that in Egyptian culture, that was what some of them did when they had a problem with their enemy that they had offended, that they had sinned against. And they would come symbolically, and obviously this literal burning coals on their head would be the idea of their coming to their enemy who they've offended so that they're saying... If I do any more evil toward you, it's like this burning coals on my head is going to be delivered upon me. These burning coals are going to fry my brain. They're going to torch my head. It's going to be wicked for me. It's going to be bad for me. And now I'm coming to you with a humble heart, with a penitent heart, with a repentant heart. And when I come to you with this, I'm saying, may this never happen to you. And if this happens to you again by my sin against you, it's like I'm going to be burning up with these burning coals on my head. It's, it might as well be that you take that, that bowl and you just put those burning coals right on my head. See, that's what it likely means. The idea of Proverbs 25 then, when it talks about burning coals, what does it mean? It means you go to your enemy that you've sinned against and you do everything to reconcile with that enemy. And you know what? In the process of you being so strong in your repentance, so strong in your penitence that when you came to that person and he saw those burning coals on top of your head, he might say to himself, wow, that person's really serious about their sin. They're really serious about being right with God. You know what? I'm not that kind of person. I'm not that serious about my sin. I'm certainly not going to people around me and trying to have them forgive my sin. I'm not going around like burning coals on my head to people I know. You know what? It might even be a, an evangelistic opportunity. And you know what? That's exactly the context of Romans chapter 12. Do not do evil to someone. Do not return evil for evil, but over overcome evil with what? Good. And if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, it will be as though you're bringing heaps of burning coals upon his head. You see? But if you don't understand wisdom literature then how might we understand heaps of burning coals? It's probably going to be forever unknowable to us. Which means what? I need to study. I need to read. I need to grow. I need to do everything I can to understand these Proverbs as I should. Now, as we close this morning, I want to say this to you. I really believe that as we study the book of Proverbs, 
it will transform this church. I really believe that. When we look at these Proverbs in the way that God intends, it's going to be exciting. It is going to be tremendous. This week, I went through the Proverbs again, reading each of them, and these are some of the things we're going to discuss. Just think about how exciting this is going to be. First of all, we're going to talk about bad company corrupting good morals. Or maybe a subtitle, don't hang with the wrong crowd. Okay? That's going to be in Proverbs chapter 1 and some selected Proverbs. Secondly, we're going to learn how to be a wise guy. Now, I don't mean a smart aleck. I mean someone who has wisdom for the ages. Thirdly, we're going to look at sex as God intends from Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7. Fourthly, we're going to look at parental instruction from the school of hard knocks. Or, do as I say, not as I did. That's Solomon. That's Solomon, right? He's gone through a, a thing or two. He knows what to say. He knows where he's coming from. And then lastly, we'll pick up every other selected proverb that we can't put in those categories under the, under, underneath the banner, what does this have to do with my life? You know what? This is going to be great. This is going to be fantastic. Because while these things may not be binding on every Christian for all the ages with every specific application given, these principles, these general truths are great for us because they tell us in generic terms how to live, how to have wisdom, how to have joy, how to have relationships, laziness, poverty, forgiveness, money, hope, integrity, mercy, faith, shame, spiritual fruit, deceit, anxiety, injustice, humor, loving riches, tranquility, omniscience, prayer, planning, diligence, wickedness, righteousness, speech, the fear of the Lord, pride, gossip, generosity, discipline, honor, foolishness, joy, prudence, spanking, anger, work, gentleness, reproof, motives, providence, election, predestination, maturity, grandchildren and grandparents, bribing, quarreling, strife, carelessness, partiality, offenses, slander, mocking, rebelliousness, friendship, contentiousness, bitterness, depression, and marriage. And about a hundred more. I mean, this is a long overdue book for us to have understood, right? Well, I hope we're going to understand it in great ways. Let's pray together. Father, with these things in mind, might we respond as the Proverbs themselves tell us how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Father, I pray that we would pursue this wisdom and we would pursue it as though it were precious silver. And if we were to do that, we know that you would be pleased with what we're doing and how we're doing it. Lord, please make this true of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.